So like I said, today is Reformation Sunday. It's obviously also Halloween. And there's a connection between those two we will get to um, later on in the sermon. But to celebrate Reformation Sunday this year, I actually want to focus more on Halloween, which I recognize is an unconventional choice. Of all the holidays our culture celebrates, Halloween seems obviously the most unchristian one of them. And in fact, there is a widely uh, spread uh, but false narrative that its origins are a pagan celebration of the dead. The tradition actually goes back to the medieval church and its celebration of All Saints Day, which is tomorrow. All Saints Day is the day the church has historically honored and celebrated the triumph of saints gone before us, especially our uh, martyred brothers and sisters. Now, a more traditional word for saint is hallowed. The same root we get, hallowed be thy name, saintly be thy name. So originally, All Saints Day was known as All Hallows Day. Well, just like we do with Christmas, the eve of All Hallows Day had its own traditions. So it became known as Hallows Eve, and then eventually the contraction Halloween. And what, um, and what they did on Hallows Eve was interesting. Keeping with the theme of um, All Hallows Day, the triumph of the, of the saints over sin and death, Hallows Eve turned into an audacious tradition of boasting in that triumph. The Christian confidence is so sure, so secure, that we will set aside a celebration where we literally mock the forces of evil and death itself. Historically, costumes are a form of mockery, and so through costumes, the church would make fun of Satan, make fun of the devils, make fun of death. Quite literally, Halloween was a night to party at hell's expense. Now, of course, Halloween has turned into a cultural phenomenon that's completely different. I recognize that. Deeply problematic themes, at times a glorification of evil, not a mocking of evil. But the point is that when you see all those neighborhood kids dressed up scary tonight, you ought to be thinking, Satan, death, hell, you're as scary to me as this snotty-nosed kid begging me for candy. That's the nature of Halloween. Now, that makes for a great lesson on the history of the holiday, but what I want us to consider in this sermon is whether this unflinching fearlessness over evil is even possible. It's such, it is such brazen confidence in the face of our greatest fears available to us. I want to turn your attention back to our opening hymn that Martin Luther, we sing this every Reformation Sunday, it's Martin Luther's most famous hymn. On page four, you sang this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. And of course, that word is the name of Jesus. It's one thing to sing it. It's another thing to live the Christian life with such amazing confidence over Satan, death, and hell. That's what I want us to discover this morning. I thought of this intense 
passage because it truly is, when you actually get into it and consider and imagine it, it is like a scene out of the horror movie. Truly terrifying stuff. But Jesus enters into the horror to unveil to us our confidence in the face of the horror. We're going to explore it by looking at the end of evil and then the end of evil. Two points, worded the same, but used in different ways. It will make sense, I promise. Let's start with the end of evil in this sense. This terrifying passage is given to us as a vivid depiction of our own sinfulness, namely the end, the outcome, the full manifestation and measure of the evil inside us all were it to grow to its fullest. At first glance, you will be tempted to say, I can't relate to this passage, but all of us can, and I want to show you why. Let's start with verse 2. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So this is a demon-possessed man walking out of their version of a graveyard. Scary stuff. But in our culture, I recognize it is completely far-fetched stuff. But I actually do believe in demons, and so does the majority of the world. I understand that we live in a society um, where everything is reduced down to natural causes, and there is no room for the supernatural, but I do believe there is more to existence than what we can physically observe. If there is a God, then there is a supernatural, spiritual realm, and I just don't think it's crazy to believe that evil forces inhabit that realm as the Bible claims. But, you might say, we just know so much more now, right? The Bible was written in an archaic culture that over-spiritualized everything. They didn't understand psychosis and schizophrenia and the host of other mental disorders, so they just attributed those things to demonic influences. That's what's going on in this passage. Well, Contrary to that line of thinking, the Bible actually has a complex understanding of the human person. They knew the difference between mental problems and demonic problems. I'll give you one example. Matthew 4.24, it says that they were bringing to Jesus all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralyzed. The word there for epileptics is not an easy one to translate. In fact, some translations just use the word lunatics. But we know it was their word for those diseased of the mind. So they were bringing to Jesus those possessed by demons and those diseased of the mind, which means they had a category for both. They knew the difference between satanic influence and mental illness. And in our passage, it is obvious that this is indeed a case of the demonic. But again, what I don't want us to do is assume, therefore, that it does not apply to us. I'm not possessed, so what's this got to do with me? Well, I wonder how this man got to this point. This is a real person with a real story that led him into this very real state of ruin and misery. Notice how verse 3 is worded. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore. Anymore, Meaning it wasn't always this bad. But what's happened is that this evil has gotten out of control. You see, evil is a progressive condition, which is so important to understand if we are going to see ourselves in this passage. 
I don't know if you think that this man was walking down the street minding his own business and out of nowhere a demon jumped into his body. That's not the way it works. Instead, we are witnessing the end of a progressive pattern of evil. 1 Timothy 3 tells us that it is the proud who fall into the trap of the devil. Ephesians 4 tells us that um, anger offers a foothold for the devil. 1 Peter 5 tells us to be alert because the devil is prowling around seeking someone to devour, seeking the spiritually vulnerable to attack. So unlike the horror movies where demonic activity is just random and senseless, the Bible portrays demonic influence as coming alongside our own sinfulness. Satan is like a fertilizer to the growth of our sin. Wherever we are lazy in repentance, wherever we quench the conviction of the Holy Spirit, wherever we fail to confess and mortify our sins, we are vulnerable to his attack. Now, the reason why that's important is because it means that we are complicit in the evil of our own lives. I don't want this sermon to add demonic influence to the ever-growing list of excuses in our culture. You know, just Satan made me do it. It's not the way it works. We must own the evil that belongs to us. And part of the consequences of that evil is that it makes us vulnerable to spiritual attacks which only perpetuate more evil and temptation and more vulnerability. And yes, that evil progression can go so far that one literally surrenders to evil. Surrenders control to evil, giving, giving complete ownership like we see in our text. My friends who minister in cultures outside the West where spiritual manifestations are far more prevalent Um, Whenever they encounter a situation like this, it's always the same. It's not random. They they will tell you that this was a person who was dabbling in witchcraft or voodoo or unrepentant sin, opening themselves up to this progression of evil that lands in this most severe condition. Now, this is obviously extreme, but that's precisely the point of the passage. That's why the passage is given to us. And this is why I'm calling it the end of evil. It's meant to shock us, to confront us with where our sin is heading. Take us to the final destination of what we dabble in so carelessly. Friends, sin is scary. It's scary. Wake up. Our refusal to repent is one step closer to our utter ruin. But if it is so destructive, then why is it so tempting? Why is it so tempting to ruin our lives? Well, don't overcomplicate temptation. It offers us something. That's why it's tempting. Look at verse 4. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Here is what we are meant to see in that. Evil does offer something. As he progressed in evil, he was growing in strength. And this thing had gotten to the point where nobody had the power to subdue him. By the way, another side. Again, my friends who minister in contexts like this will say that that, uh, demonic oppression um, often does lead to instances of supernatural strength. But the point I'm making is that evil does offer you something. This is an extreme case, but the principle applies. 
Sin is always a shortcut, a quick way to get what you wrongfully desire. You want worldly power? Sin is the quickest way to the top. You want wealth? The easiest way is not hard work, but deceitful gain. Sin your way into a fortune. You want excessive pleasure today? Pornography is literally a quick, a click away for you in this moment. Do you see? Whatever your sinfulness craves is readily available if you will but give way to evil. And that's the point of verse 4. He is the most powerful man in the land. No one can subdue him, not even with their chains, but at what cost? Verse 5. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. What a horrific, haunting picture of ruin and misery. Living among the tombs, isolated and alone, his only friendship with the dead. Crying out continually in his despair, self-mutilating himself with, with stones. This is a picture of utter degradation. He's like an animal, completely undone, dignity forsaken, God's good design wholly forfeited. He has become a twisted creature to the point that the image of God is barely even recognizable. And so this is the pattern of evil. It offers us what our sinful nature craves, but in the end, it makes us its slave and takes everything from us in the process. The final ruin of evil's path. That is what we are supposed to see in this frightening passage. So, tremble this hallow's eve over the carnage of evil. Let it scare you. This, brothers and sisters, this is what you are to truly fear. Your own evil. The end of evil is, as the Proverbs promises, and this passage demonstrates, a banquet in the grave. Is there any hope out of the nightmare of our own making? Not in yourself, but yes, I'm here to tell you this morning there is. Let's turn to that. We've witnessed the end of evil. Now let's see the end of evil. Verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. I just found that so fascinating this week. The demons recognize Jesus and the tormentors ask not to be tormented. Meaning, what we fear is afraid of Jesus. In fact, they're so scared of him, you know what they try to do? Pray. I kid you not. They say, I adjure you by God, do not torment us. You know what they're doing? They're trying to perform an exorcism on Jesus. An exorcism is an appeal to a higher power for deliverance. The demons are saying, in the name of Almighty God, get out of here, Jesus. Problem is that the name of God is the name of Jesus, and he's not going to answer their prayer. He will not leave the demons alone. Verse 9, what is your name? That's a power move. He's showing his authority. You tell me your name, and then I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do with you. He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. 
Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So the demons know they are in trouble. They know he's going to do something with them, and they're pleading for leniency. Pigs in that culture were the lowest of lows. And so they are saying, at least let us go into the pigs. Meaning, it's an embarrassing request, a humiliating request. Jesus is humiliating the forces of darkness. Verse 13, so he gave them permission. The unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen go out. They tell the whole countryside what they saw. The whole town comes back to see for themselves. And then verse 15, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. What a fascinating ending that you are supposed to notice. This terrifying passage ends with, and they were afraid. The nightmare is over, but they are afraid. Why are they afraid? I thought the guy who had tormented this village was in his right mind. He is, but now they're in their right minds. What they thought was powerful and to be feared is sitting at the feet of the one who is truly powerful and to be feared. An entire legion of demons. I'm not sure you can think of something more frightening than that, but actually you can, because the scariest thing imaginable is scared of Jesus. What does that say about Jesus? The one with all authority and all power, The name above every name who commands and demands spiritual forces is in their midst. Of course they're scared. Verse 7 is perhaps the most authentic and appropriate question to ask when we are in our right minds and see Jesus clearly. The demons recognized him. And if we recognize them, we will inevitably join them in their desperate question, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? What are you going to do with me? That is the question of someone in their right mind, especially how culpable we are with evil. And so we join the demons pleading for mercy. What will you do with us? What a fearful question to ask. What, holy Jesus, will you do with us sinners? Now, you want to talk scary? This is what he should do do with us. He should treat us as our sins deserve. He should hand us over to the ruinous hell of our own choosing. That's what he should do. What will he do? Bless his merciful name. I will tell you what he will do. He will deliver us from evil. And by deliver, I mean abolish. But it's going to take more than the sacrifice of pigs for that. Speaking of legion... Just before his cross, Jesus says, listen, if I wanted to, I could summon a legion of angels to come rescue me. He could have, but he doesn't. Instead, he chooses to deliver us from evil by receiving our evil. And the one who brought this tormented soul out of the tombs took took our evil into the tomb, and he left it there, burying our sins in the grave forevermore. And in this way, Colossians 2 says this, He disarmed the evil authorities, making a mockery of them 
by triumphing over them in the cross. His death made a mockery of Satan by disarming Satan. You see, Satan's truest terror is not demon possessions. It's his accusations. He's called our accuser. And he has much to accuse. We stand before Almighty God, and it is our accuser who holds our sins against us and God's justice. Look what this sinner has done. Look at his endless list of crimes against your holiness. Are you not God? Are you not just? Then you must punish this sinner to the fullest extent. That's the nightmare, friends. That's the nightmare. But Jesus wakes us from the nightmare by silencing the accusations. Our defender says to our accuser, what sins? What what are these sins you speak of? The only sins I know belong to me. Their sins were mine. I took them. I was punished for them. I went to the grave with them and I left them rotting in the tomb. I'm sorry, Satan, your accusations have been disarmed. Leave my sons and daughters alone and go to hell where you belong. Happy Hallow's Eve. 500 years ago, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther was living a nightmare. Uh, His world, like ours, was in the throes of a pandemic, only much worse. You'd get a fever in the morning and be dead that night. Fear of death was everywhere, and uh, Martin Luther was feeling it more than anyone. He lived in terror that he might die, and more than that, he knew that he would be facing judgment after. And so he gave every waking moment of his life to live a life that could survive that judgment. Meticulously, he tried to obey every jot and tittle of God's law. Luther himself said, if ever there was a monk that could get into heaven by monkery, it would have been me. It was to no avail. The more he tried, the more sins he would see. And no amount of confession and penance, Luther wore out the confession booth just all day. Oh, forgot that one. Better go back. Oh, forgot that one. Better go back. No amount of confession, no amount of penance could bring the assurance of salvation he so desperately sought. But Luther was an educated man. Um, He had a mastery of the Greek language, which which was unconventional for monks in the day. And so instead of the Latin translation, which was the accepted translation by the Catholic Church and was full of mistranslations that benefited the Catholic Church, he began to study the New Testament in its original language. And it was in his studies that his nightmare came to an end. He discovered, or better say he rediscovered, what I just proclaimed to you. Luther found that indeed he could not deliver himself from evil, but Jesus could. In fact, Jesus had. Luther was forgiven. His conscience was at last free, and he was ready to tell the entire world about the gospel he had rediscovered. He summarized all of his findings into 95 theses and decided to nail them to the door of his local Catholic church. And he knew just the day to do it. You see, he had discovered the true reason why Christians can indeed boast in their triumph over sin, Satan, and death. So on the day set aside to mock the forces of darkness, Hallow's Eve 1517, Luther nailed to the door the good news of Satan's mockery. And now, 
we, the inheritors of Luther's Reformation, find ourselves on another Hallow's Eve. Let's go forth with that same confidence Luther discovered. Fear not, brothers and sisters. What we fear is afraid of our Jesus. So go have some fun today at hell's expense. Let me pray. Lord, we have heard the word, we've sung the songs, we've, we've listened to the sermon. We want to believe this. We want this unshakable confidence. We want to face down our own death and, and laugh at the grave that no longer has sting. We want to have no fear of judgment and what is to come. We want that, Lord. But we need you, as the Spirit promises, to apply the work of Jesus to our hearts. And so, Lord, would you, by this sacrament, which is the perfect fitting application of this sermon, would you impress it so deeply upon us that we leave here as the most confident Christians in Christ the city has ever known. Send us forth with a surety that we can even mock Satan and hell because we know our Jesus. Do that in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name.